Amen. Well, as we begin uh, this study, walking through a sermon delivered directly from Jesus' mouth, I think it's, it's, it's quite obvious for us to recognize that, that Jesus lived in a culture quite different from our culture. Right? Jesus was preaching this sermon to a group of people living in a culture that looked nothing like our culture today. Right? So it's no secret that we live in a completely different world when compared to Jesus and his disciples. We have social media, we have cars, we celebrate the Super Bowl. Right? Jesus and his disciples, they lived essentially in a desert. Right? They lived in a desert. They rode around on donkeys. They celebrated Jewish holidays like the Feast of Booths. Many, many of us don't even know what that is. Right? We live in a completely different world in comparison with Jesus. Right? The differences between the ancient Middle East and the present Western world are stark. The differences are staggering. Literally, you would probably be shocked if somehow you were transported through time and history from the Middle East to our present day, right? You'd walk in and say, what in the world just happened, right? You'd fall on the ground because the worlds are so different. But this leads us to wonder, how is it that Jesus's words can still be so relevant? How is it that even though this man lived 2,000 years ago, How is it that that he has the ability to speak to humanity today, even though we live in a completely different culture, even though we live in a completely different time and a, a completely different political environment? Doesn't that go against all worldly wisdom? Like you hear today, you need to know your audience. You need to know your culture. You need to speak directly to your audience. Well, Wait a second, how then does Jesus speak so profoundly to us today? He lived 2,000 years ago. The reason for this is simple. The reason Jesus was able to speak across millennia is simple. It's because he knew the human heart. Jesus still knows the human heart, right? He is the eternal God who created the human heart and therefore he knows the human heart well. So technology might change from one generation to another. Uh, The means of transportation might change from one time to another. Holidays that we celebrate might change from one time to another, but the human heart does not change. And because of that, the impact of Jesus' words, they still remain. His words still have the ability to dissect the human conscience. His his words still carry the strength to make a grown man fall on his knees in tears. This is why we're going to study the Sermon on the Mount. This is why we are going to, to dive into this sermon, or rather climb up this mountain for the next few months. This is one of the most extensive portions of the Bible which lays out Jesus' teaching progressively. This is one of the few places where we have such an extensive, detailed account of of Jesus's teaching. This is a three-chapter-long sermon, essentially. I mean, compare that with the other sermons that we read about in the Bible, and this is by far the longest. You know, maybe you can think of Paul's uh, in in Acts Acts chapter 17. That's half a chapter. This is a three-chapter sermon coming directly from the mouth of Jesus. And that's why we are going to sit here and listen to what God has to say. And my hope is that our hearts will be ministered as we get the chance to hear from Jesus. I know over the last couple of weeks, my heart has been ministered. As I'm just pouring over these, these passages and just hearing from Christ speak to us in his word, I've been ministered and I hope that you get to you get to feel that. I hope that you get to experience that as well. So before we begin, let me just pray one more time. Uh, God, yes, we are are coming to you. We are about to ascend to the mountaintop and hear from none other than your son. And Lord, as we, we go on this journey, we pray that you would help us. 
We pray that you would minister to us. We pray that you would invite us into your presence that we might hear from you. We pray that your spirit, your Holy Spirit, would be active in this place, drawing us to yourself, giving us the ability to hear what you have to say and see what you have written in in front of our very eyes. God, I pray that the next few months would be a, a joyful opportunity for every person in this room and for every person who walks through uh, the doors here on a Tuesday night. Father, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Okay, so as I mentioned, we're going to be in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, from now until the end of May. But tonight, what I really want to do is prepare us for what we're going to be reading and what we're going to be studying. So tonight is going to be an introduction into this sermon. I mean, it's important that we ask, how do we get to chapter 5? Right? How did we show up here at the Sermon on the Mount? What actually led us here? What happened before we got here? And that's an important question for us to understand. You see, for us to understand the sermon, uh, we need to know the context of Matthew. We need to understand what has taken place in Matthew chapters 1 through 4 in order to understand what's happening here in chapter 5. Now, I think this is true of any, any book that we study in the Bible. We always need to know context. However, this is especially true in the book of Matthew. I love the book of Matthew. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible, if not my favorite. And it's primarily because this was one of the very first books that I read when I became a Christian and I just started reading and reading and and coming to an understanding of who Christ is as I read through the book of Matthew. But as I've grown um, in faith, I've, I've come to love this book even more. And part of the reason is because Matthew is a master of literary style and formatting. As we study Matthew, I think you'll get a, a taste of this tonight. Matthew is writing at a, a variety of different levels. There's, there's kind of a shallowness to what he's saying where almost anyone can understand what he's saying. But the more you study it, the more you realize what he's saying is, is deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, right? This is one of the most uh, highly stylized and, and highly formatted books in the entire Bible. Matthew wrote with specific structure, especially when you compare it with the other Gospels. The other Gospels do not pale in comparison to Matthew as pertains to Matthew's structure. He's writing a highly structured letter, a highly structured Gospel, and it's, it's significant. I mean, who here loves math? Is anyone here actually willing to admit to that? Okay, a few, a few of you. Well, the only way that you could possibly love math is if you understand how math works. Right? You, ha- you have to understand how math works if you are actually going to love math. You need to understand the structure of how a mathematical equation is, is brought together. I mean, complex math questions, they must be understood in regards to their structure. You need to know how to, to order and structure the math equation if you're ever going to accomplish it. So you look at the equation, you see, okay, there's fractions over here, there's multiplication over here, there's a parentheses right in the middle here, I don't know why that's there, right? And then you got subtraction over here and addition over here. Well, I mean, if you're just looking at that, you could just get lost. But once you understand the structure of the equation, the pieces start to fit together. You're able to start to understand what's going on. Well, in a sense, the book of Matthew is similar. In order to understand the larger message, the larger uh, point of the book, it is essential that we understand how the individual pieces of the book all fit together. Every piece of Matthew's equation is essential for us to understand. We need to understand how each piece of this equation fits together. So the Gospel of Matthew... Let me just give you a brief overview. The Gospel of Matthew consists of five long discourses. These are are speeches, if you will. So as you look through Matthew, Jesus will give a long speech five times. And in between each one of those different speeches, you will have a, a narrative explaining what Jesus did, where Jesus went, 
who Jesus was talking to, who Jesus was interacting with. So you have narrative, speech, narrative, speech, narrative, speech, so on and so forth. Well, the first narrative is is chapters one through four. And the first speech is the Sermon on the Mount. So think of this in terms of the ordering of the Bible. Matthew is the first gospel, and this is the first time we hear an extended speech from Jesus' mouth. So that's significant in and of itself, right? The, the early church saw Matthew as one of the most important books in the entire Bible. And the fact that Matthew was, was placed at the very beginning of the New Testament was significant. They saw this book as significant, and these are the very first words coming from Jesus' mouth in the Sermon on the Mount, if you will. So it's also important that we understand that Matthew communicates his message not only by explaining what Jesus said, not only by explaining what Jesus did, but the order in which Matthew tells this story is significant. So, so he will put two events right next to each other, and then you, as a reader, are left to interpret why he put those two events next to each other. Does that make sense? He, he may not even explain what he's doing. But he'll put two events right next to each other, or he'll put a string of events followed by one of these these five speeches, and you're supposed to understand the connection, right? This happened, then this happened, then this happened, and then Matthew goes, here's a speech. And all of those actions were leading up to the speech. In a lot of ways, that's what Matthew 1 through 4 does. Matthew 1 through 4 highlights Jesus's identity, You just see over and over this explanation. Here's who Jesus is. Here's this this new teacher, this this messianic figure coming onto the stage. Who is this man? And Matthew explains, he explains, he explains through chapters one through four. And then we get to chapter five. And now Jesus, this man who has just been identified, now he is preaching to the crowds. So he doesn't necessarily organize his gospel. This is actually important for us to understand. Matthew doesn't necessarily organize his gospel in a historical sense. This isn't just a sequence of actions, right? When you open up a history book and you're reading through a history book and it's just this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. That's not how Matthew's writing. He's not just writing a historical account of what Jesus did. Matthew's writing a theological account of what Jesus did as well. And so he's ordering Jesus' events in a specific order, and then he's, then he's following those events by a specific speech. Right? Jesus' life wasn't really set up this way, where it was like he lived, and then he gave a speech, and then he lived for, for three more chapters, and then he gave a three-chapter speech, and then he lived for four more chapters, and then he gave a, another speech. Right? Matthew's, Matthew's actually putting the pieces together in a specific way. That's important for us to understand. He's organizing what Jesus did and what Jesus said in specific order in order to communicate a theological message. So that's kind of a lot. That's an overview. But now let's actually get on the ground and start to see some of this. So I want to spend the next next few minutes highlighting what we find in chapters 1 through 4 in order to prepare us for what we find in chapters 5 through 7, okay? So as we look at chapters 1 through 4, it's important that we understand the lessons we find here so that we might understand the Sermon on the Mount. First off, I want to point out that I've already kind of referenced this, but here Matthew is really intending to illuminate and and. Help us to understand Jesus' true identity. In a sense, he's setting the stage. Who is this man? And that's why when you read through the first few chapters of Matthew, I don't, I, I don't know how familiar you are with Matthew, but when you, when you read through the first few chapters, you see reference after reference to the Old Testament. One after another after another. And it's always like, this was to fulfill this. Right? This was to fulfill this. And there's all these Old Testament references explaining that Jesus is the promised Messiah. It's what all of these Old Testament references are meant to point us to. But Jesus, or Matthew is not only using direct quotes from the Old Testament to explain who Jesus is. Matthew is 
helping us to understand what Jesus did in order to understand who he is. So, for instance, in chapters 1 through 4, Matthew is going to highlight a number of events in Jesus' life in order to show that Jesus is the new and better son of David, that he is the new and better offspring of Abraham, that he is the new and better Moses, that he is the new and better Israel. So all four of those identity markers are found in these first four chapters. Offspring of Abraham, offspring of David, the new and better Israel, the new and and better leader of the people of God, the new and better Moses. So let's just, at at a quick glance, look at these different lessons. Right in chapter 1, verse 1, what do we find? This is how Matthew starts his gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right off the bat, we have covenantal language at play. So we just went through the covenants. Uh, If you've, you've been here the last few weeks, we studied both the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. And in both of those covenants, what do we have? We have a promise of an offspring to come. Matthew opens up his gospel pointing out Jesus is the promised son of Abraham. Jesus is the promised son of David. Let's keep going. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here's what we read. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, a wise man from the east came to Jerusalem saying, or wise men from the east, rather, came to uh, Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Notice the idea of the Davidic covenant comes up yet again. This is a king. So the Davidic covenant was all about a promised king. The promised king would come from Bethlehem. Look, this... This new king was born where? In Bethlehem. But notice, this is the promised king who who is not a typical king. This is not your normal king. This individual, he, he is receiving worship. That's unique. No Israelite king ought to be worshiped. And yet Jesus comes on the stage as an infant and these wise men from the east come to him and start to worship him. This is not an ordinary king. Matthew intended you to recognize that. Go forward to uh, chapter 2, verse 13. This, I think, is, is extremely interesting. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the, for the child and destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and they departed to Egypt. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. What's going on here? Think about this for a moment. What happened at the very beginning of Moses' life? Remember this whole event? Moses is placed in a basket, sent down the river. Pharaoh's daughter finds him in a basket. Why in the world was Moses put in the basket in the first place? It's because a king was seeking the life of every infant in the land. Like Moses, Jesus is on the run from a tyrannical, baby-killing king. The difference is, Jesus is not in Egypt. He's in Israel. It's as though the, the struggle and the hurt and the pain and the evil of Egypt has come to Israel. So now, Jesus is left fleeing to Egypt for safety. It's as though Israel is in, a new, in need of a new king. Israel needs a new ruler, and that ruler has arrived. It's Jesus Christ. Let's continue. Matthew 3. As you look at the beginning of Matthew 3, what do we find? 
In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Well, what does this have to do with anything? This is actually a little bit technical, so follow me here. Every one of Israel's kings, they were partnered with prophets. Right? The prophets would come, they would speak the word to God's people, the king would rule God's people. And remember, David was preceded by a prophet. Who was David preceded by? Samuel. So Samuel, as a prophet, is preparing the way for King David. Now in the same way, there's a new prophet who's preparing the way for the Messiah. Yet, there's another aspect of Jesus' kingly uh, uh, ministry here. He has his own prophet preparing the way for him, just like Samuel prepared the way for David. Okay, let's keep going. Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus. Famous passage, you probably have all heard of this. This is when Jesus goes out into the wilderness and he begins to, to fast for 40 days, for 40 nights in the wilderness. And as he's there, Satan begins to tempt him. Very beginning, chapter 4, we read this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So then we have this list of temptations. Three temptations come to Jesus, and he withstands all three of these temptations. How? By going to the book of Deuteronomy. He goes to the book of Deuteronomy. He battles against Satan's temptations, Satan's lies, with the word of God. Now, maybe you've heard a sermon on this. I know I have. And the message is essentially, how do you fight temptation? you go to the word of God. That's what Jesus did. That's true. I'm not downplaying that. That's true, but there's more going on here, right? That's not the only message that Matthew's trying to present. The message that Matthew's trying to present isn't necessarily that Jesus fought temptation with scripture. No, Matthew's point is that Jesus is the new Israel who goes into the wilderness and does not fail. Notice the similarities, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. Israel is in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is being tempted over and over again. Israel is being tempted over and over again. And as we begin to look at the details here, we realize Jesus is being tempted in similar ways to the ways in which Israel was tempted. Remember, Israel was bitter because they weren't receiving the type of food they wanted. Jesus is being tempted. Turn this stone into bread. But notice there's even more going on here. As we really think through the details here, the details are even more staggering than that. Remember when you're reading through the years uh, when Israel is in the desert for 40 years and Moses gets mad at one point and he looks at this stone and he strikes it with his staff and out of that stone comes water to give the Israelites' water as they're in the desert. I don't think it's just a coincidence that Jesus now is being tempted, turn this stone into bread. No, Matthew doesn't think it's a coincidence either that that happened to Christ, right? Jesus' life is being put, placed in direct parallel with the Israelites in the wilderness. And we're seeing we have a better Israel Not only that, we have a better leader. We have a better Moses. This this individual doesn't get, get overwhelmed and overcome by the temptations of Satan when they come his way. He doesn't go to the stone in rage and turn it into bread like Moses. Remember, that's the reason Moses was prevented from going into the promised land because of his anger in that moment when he struck the bread. Similarities between Moses and Jesus, they're on highlight here. Okay, let's keep going. There's more to see. Chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, a new king has arrived. 
David was promised that he would have a son who would be a king, who would reign on the throne. But notice, this kingdom is larger than the kingdom of Israel. This kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. Jesus comes on the stage and he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That would strike the ear of an Israelite with a bit of oddity, right? They're thinking, wait a second, I thought the Messiah was coming to reign on David's throne in Israel. And Jesus comes on the stage and says, hey, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ is here to to usher in the kingdom of God. Christ is here to connect mankind back to their creator. He's here to usher in the kingdom of heaven. Let's keep going. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 of of chapter 5. So this is the, the verse before the Sermon on the Mount begins. Seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Okay, so what is going on here? Again, this is actually meant to draw our attention to Moses. Jesus is the better Moses. He's going up the mountain to give a new law. Think back to the Old Testament. What is Moses doing during the 40 years in the wilderness? He's going up the mountain to speak with God to give a new law. Moses goes up the mountain. He receives the law from God. He comes back. He delivers it to the people. Now Jesus is going up the mountain and he's giving a new law. This is amazing stuff. As I said, Matthew is a master of of drawing truths out just through the use of literature. He's pointing out these amazing truths throughout his gospel. Now, before we move on, we actually need to see one more identity marker from these passages. I highlighted Jesus is the new Israel. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. He's the new and better Moses. But there's one other identity marker that I didn't talk about, and that is the fact that Jesus is the incarnate son of God. We see that highlighted over and over again in these four chapters. Go back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus is given a name, God with us. Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. We already looked at this verse, but but this is the, the passage about John the Baptist out in the wilderness. Notice what he's saying. The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. So the prophet who's preparing the way for Jesus, he is not only preparing the way for the Messiah, he's preparing the way for the Lord. That's significant. Let's keep going. Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 and 25. And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and, and every affliction from all, among all the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted in the various diseases and, and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, those uh, who are paralytics, And he healed them. So this Messiah comes on the stage. His name is God with us. He has a prophet who's out in the desert preparing the way for the Lord. And then Jesus begins to act. And what does he do? He shows his power over the curse. All aspects of the curse are being being brought to an end as Christ is speaking. Sickness done away with. The demons are put in their place. You have people who are paralytics and they're healed. Christ is restoring things to the way they were meant to be. Let's 
go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. We already saw this verse. It points to the fact that, that Jesus is a new and better Moses who's bringing a new law. But notice, Jesus does not go up the mountain to receive the law from the Lord like Moses. Jesus goes up the mountain to proclaim the word. Again, Matthew is, is not providing these details for no reason. He's communicating something. Jesus is going up the mountain, and when he speaks, God speaks. This is a new law coming from the voice of Jesus. Remember, Moses goes up the mountain, God descends in a cloud. Jesus goes up the mountain, and the cloud doesn't need to, sit to descend because God is already there speaking to his people. This is not merely a man. This is God himself coming to give the new law. So I hope that now you're beginning to feel the weight of this sermon. Matthew is highlighting we have a new Israel here. We have a a new Moses here. This is the, the better son of Abraham. This is the better son of David. This is God himself. And this is what he says. So, how do we interpret the sermon? How do we interpret the sermon? I I think that may seem like a um, simple question, but this is actually somewhat of a tricky question to understand. What do we do with Jesus' words here? How do we understand what Jesus communicates here in Matthew 5 through 7? The reason I say this is tricky is because throughout church history, people have interpreted the sermon in all sorts of different ways. I want to highlight the two most popular ways. These are the two most popular ways people interpret the sermon. First, many will say that Jesus' words here are strictly meant to provide us an understanding of what virtue looks like. You want to be godly? Read the sermon and do it. You want to, to have character? Read the sermon and do it. The sermon tells us how to be righteous people. That's the first way that many people have interpreted this sermon throughout the course of church history. The second way is is that uh, people will argue that the sermon is meant to bring conviction. And that's its purpose. So you hear these words spoken, here's the law. And many throughout church history have said, here's the law, you obviously can't do this, therefore... Flee to Jesus. He will provide you the righteousness you need. So which is it? These are the two most popular ways to interpret the sermon. Either it's, here's what it means to be a righteous man, or you're not righteous, therefore flee to Jesus and find forgiveness. Which of the two is it? Because that's going to radically differ in the way that we if, we, if we just followed one of those courses of, tra- uh, of interpretation, that's going to change the way we interpret the entire sermon, if we just follow one or the other. Now, I think typically with these sorts of things, is it's good to try to find a balance. There's truth in both of these, these versions of interpreting the sermon. Here, this is really a, a both. This is a passage meant to teach us what true virtue looks like. This is a passage that's meant to teach us how we are to live our lives. Yet at the same time, this is a law that we are incapable of keeping apart from the grace of God. And therefore, we need Christ's forgiveness. We read this and we recognize our sin. Therefore, we come to Christ and say, I need your forgiveness. I recognize this is the way I'm supposed to live and I'm striving to live that way, but I'm going to seek your forgiveness. So let's consider this a little bit. I think as you hear this sermon, you will begin to feel the weightiness of Jesus' words and because of that, you will recognize that you have failed to keep this law. Right? Christabel even pointed that out as we were about to sing that final song. You read the Beatitudes and you go, man, I'm not meek. I'm not a peacemaker. I'm not patient. And you realize, I need Christ to offer the forgiveness I need. Jesus meant for that to happen. This is why as we read through the Sermon on the Mount, we keep reading about the hypocrites over and over, these 
hypocrites come out. Jesus is, is referring to them in order to tell us, even though they think they are keeping the law, they are incapable of doing it because they are not keeping it wholeheartedly. So even the, the, the hypocrite needs to recognize he needs the forgiveness of Christ. So Jesus meant for us to see that. He's calling us to see the heart of the law. He wants us to come to terms with the intentions of the law. And the more we understand the intentions of the law, the more we recognize that we continuously fail to keep God's law. We're perpetual lawbreakers. So the sermon does lead us to conviction. But that's not the only purpose of this sermon. In fact, I would say that's not even the primary purpose of this sermon. The overarching purpose of the sermon is to teach virtue. It's to teach us what it looks like to live within the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. Remember in the very first words of the sermon in verse 1, his disciples came to him. So this is a message for disciples. Here's what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. In an overarching sense, this is about virtue. It's about living according to God's law. It's about living the way God intended for us to live. You were not created to live in rebellion against God. That's the fact of the matter. You were not created to live in in rebellion against God. You were created by God to live for God. You were created by God to live according to his character and to live according to his holiness. That's why God gives us the law. You know, sometimes we think of the law as a bad thing that is impossible to keep and therefore its only purpose is just to help us to understand how much sinners we are. That's a purpose of the law, but it's not the only purpose of the law. The law is actually a good thing. It's a kindness that God gives it to us in the first place. He shows us how we are to live as creatures created by God in his image. This is the creator telling the creation, here's how you are to live. Here's what you are created for. Have you ever tried to play a sport without any rules? Like the rules that were meant for the game, right? You try to play a sport and you go, you know what? I know there are all these rules. Let's just throw them out and try to play anyways. So, you know, I mean, imagine trying to play Settlers of Catan, Catan, however you want to say it, uh, without any rules. Like, good night. Like, that's going to be a headache that's going to cause everyone to quit the game within like 10 minutes. Like, no one wants to play Settlers without any rules. Similarly, like, think of basketball. I think sometimes we watch, like, basketball, and, like, the last two minutes of a game can last, like, 20 minutes, and you're just kind of annoyed. You're like, why is this lasting so long? And it's because of all the rules. Like, the refs keep calling, the keep blowing the whistle because, like, someone fouled someone or someone, you know, did something to delay the game even longer, and you're just like, oh, my gosh, good night, right? There's too much game stoppage. There there are too many rules. And as just an observer, you, you can get kind of frustrated with that. But you know what's even more frustrating when it comes to basketball? Trying to play basketball without any rules. I mean, if you are a basketball player and it's not a rule for someone to like tackle you to prevent you from taking a shot, that's going to get pretty frustrating really fast. Right? If it's not a, a, a penalty to double dribble or to travel, like someone just gets the ball and they start stiff-arming people and running down the court and then go and dunk on your head, you're just kind of like, well, this is pointless. Right? Just get the biggest guy on your team and he just holds the ball and just starts pushing everyone out of his way. Right? You have to have rules in order to enjoy the game of basketball, in order to jo- enjoy the game of settlers. You know, basketball is intended to be played by a certain number of guidelines. Settlers is intended to be played by a certain number of guidelines. And in a way, this is an analogy for the way life works under God's law. It's not fun to live a life of sin in a long-term sense, right? It's not fun to live a life of lies and treachery and theft. That does not turn out well in any sense, 
God is showing us how we are to live as people created in his image, in his domain. So that's a general overview of how we're going to interpret this sermon. We will recognize that this is a message for us to seek to obey, but we will also see that when we fail to obey, this is a a constant call for us to draw near to Christ and seek his forgiveness. When you do not live according to his law, we have Matthew chapters 25, 26, 27, 28, all about the death of Christ to explain what we do when we fail to keep God's law. We go to Christ because he was able to keep the details of the Sermon on the Mount perfectly and then he died as a penalty. Whose penalty did he die for? Not his own. He kept, he kept the law perfectly. He was dying for our sin. He was dying in our place. So when we come to him, we find the forgiveness we need for failing to keep this law. Christ gives us forgiveness. So we come to him for grace. And yet, as we saw in the the study of the covenants, Christ also gives us the grace to obey him. So he gives us not only the, the blessing of forgiveness, he also gives us the ability to obey. Through Christ, we have forgiveness. Through the Holy Spirit, we have the strength to obey. We have the strength to be obedient. Okay, well, for the remainder of our night, for the last 10 minutes or so, I want to provide you with a, a few uh, key themes from the sermon. This, these are themes that we're going to see over and over again. Um, and I think it will help us as we begin our, our lesson next week. So here are a few themes from these three chapters. First off, it's the idea of blessedness. We just read the, what's called the Beatitudes, these nine Beatitudes that you see in chapter 5, verses 2 through uh, 12. So what's going on here? Over and over again, this is, these are the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth. Blessed is the, blessed is the, blessed is, and you're just like, okay, what is going on? And maybe you've noticed I'm not using the term blessed. I'm using the term blessed. <laughs> what's the difference? Right? What, what's the difference when you, you eliminate like the silent E at the end and you pronounce it? Blessed is different than blessed. What's the difference going on here? Well, these are two different words and they mean two different things. And I, instead of like diagnosing what the word blessed means, let me just explain what the Greek word means. So the Greek word here is makarios and it's a unique word. Uh, and if you're a, if you're a nerd and you like languages, uh, like myself, then you may, you may understand what I'm talking about, especially if you know more than one language. So if some of you know two languages, you'll know exactly what I'm saying. Sometimes one language may have a word that does not have a direct equivalent in another language. So let's say you, you're fluent in French and English or Spanish and English or Estonian and English, right? And you, you are, are fluent in this language and you're saying something in Estonian and someone's saying, hey, what does that word mean in English? There are some words where you go, you know what? That doesn't really have like a one-to-one answer. Like I can't just give you one word and say, this word means this, right? Uh, you know, some words are simple like apple, you know, that's a very simple equivalent. Yeah, apple here, apple here. Um, but when you start getting into more technical terms, like uh, terms that are like abstract, all of a sudden, like, things start getting a little more com- complex. So that's what's happening here. This Greek word that's used, and we interpret it, or we translate it as blessed, it's a, it's a hard word to translate into English. And it doesn't help that we chose this word to translate it and no one really knows what blessed means anyways. It's like, I don't know what that means. I know what blessed means, but I don't think I know what blessed means. So let's just try to understand what this word means holistically, not just with like a one word equivalent. Let's try to understand what the word means at large. So in English, when we're trying to translate this word, we need to understand that the word means it's, it's the idea of mankind living the way they were created to live. This is the, the flourishing life. 
This is what the flourishing life as a human being looks like. This is the good life, as you'll hear sometimes in, in, in like, that's like a, a popular phrase, right? The good life. This is what we were intended for as human beings. This is, this is what we were made for. That's really what this, this word is, is meant to communicate. This is what you were created for. This is the good life. This is the, the life you were intended to live as a Christian. And so you'll read even some translations will interpret this word as happy. Maybe you even have a translation. Happy is the one who, right? And it, you're, it's trying to communicate. This is what life is meant to be. This is, this is the happy life we were created for. But it brings us back to the point we were just making. The sermon focuses on living the way God has created us to live. And this is important for us to realize. If you were to take this word to mean blessed, then you'd have the whole sermon wrong. <laughs> right? This, this word is not blessed. It's not do these virtuous things and be blessed by God. Do these, these wonderful things. Do this peacemaking do this meekness, and by doing this, you're going to be blessed by God. That's not the message of the Sermon on the Mount. It couldn't be further from the truth. This is a message not meant to say, do this to be blessed by God. This is a message saying, from God, where God is saying, you want to live the life you were intended to live? Here's how you do it. That's what's going on here. Okay, next key theme. I've already brought this up, but it's the the theme of hypocrisy. This is another theme we see through these chapters. Uh, You'll see this over and over again. Uh, Just turn to chapter 6, and you see this one time after another. Uh, Verse 2, chapter 6. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do. Jump down to... uh, verse 5 in chapter 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Jump to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Over and over again, this idea of hypocrisy is coming up. Now, in our context, right, in today's world, when you hear the word hypocrisy, what do you typically think of? You probably think of the, the guy who's, who's out telling you, don't look at pornography. Week later, he's caught cheating on his, his wife. It's like, do what he says, not what he does, right? That's what we typically think of when we think of hypocrisy. It's, it's the woman who says, it's the mom, right, who's telling, telling the child, don't steal. And then she's caught cheating on her taxes, stealing from the government, right? It, do as I say, not as I do, right? That's hypocrisy in our culture. Typically, that's what you think of, Right? But that's not exactly what Jesus is referring to. That is wrong, right? That type of hypocrisy is horrible, but that's not exactly what Jesus is getting at here. Here, he is talking about those who live a certain way outwardly. They're doing what they ought to do, but they are not doing what they ought to do inwardly. So they do the right things, they say the right things, but their heart is not in it. They may not sleep with the woman physically, right? They don't commit adultery in a physical sense. And yet, they're thinking of the woman with lust for her in their hearts. This is the type of uh, hypocrisy where someone is performing certain actions with the wrong motivation. And so as we see in in these verses in chapter 6, these are those who, who offer spiritual prayers but they pray in order to be seen by others. They want other people to look at them and say, man, that person is spiritually mature. That person's godly. This is, this is like us lifting our hands in worship, not because of the fact that we are, are standing before a holy God, not because we have reverence or fear for God, not because we are in surrender to God. We're lifting our hands in order to be seen. That's the type of hypocrisy Jesus is addressing And this is just as dangerous as the type of hypocrisy we think about in our culture. And it may be even more dangerous. Because in this type of hypocrisy, 
no one outside of God can really call you out for it because no one knows what's happening in your heart except God alone. So you may live a hypocritical life all of your life and no one around you is able to see that. But as soon as you step into the presence of God, he knows. So this is dangerous. So we need to be on the watch for our own hearts. We need to be on the lookout, watching the intentions of our hearts, the motivations of our hearts. We need to allow the sermon that Christ is preaching here to speak to our lives because this is life or death. The third uh, theme that I want to point out here is the idea of obedience from the heart. This is directly related to hypocrisy, but this is the flip side. God is calling us to holistic obedience. It's the opposite of hypocrisy. This is the, the concept uh, that, is, that is highlighted in the most famous verses here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not merely calling us to be obedient with our actions. He is calling us to be obedient with our motivations. He is calling us not to merely resist the temptation to fight against physical adultery. He's calling us to resist the temptation to to enact uh, uh, emotional adultery or, or inward adultery, adultery of the heart. That's why you see this idea of, of the heart show up so many times in the Sermon on the Mount. The heart is where the emotions find their fountain. The heart is where actions find their motivation in the, in the Bible. So this is holistic obedience that God is calling us to. He's calling us to a life of, of holistic obedience to God. As we pointed out, this is a new covenant sermon. God is calling us to obey him with the heart. But remember what we saw in Jeremiah 31. We discussed this last week. You cannot obey God from the heart until he gives you a heart transplant through the spirit. You want to obey God from the heart? You need the Holy Spirit. So the only way we can obey this sermon is if the Holy Spirit comes and gives us life and gives us the ability to obey. Now, As we close, I just want to go back to chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. My hope is that over the next few weeks, we can climb up this mountain with Christ, sit at his feet, and just learn. Christ, what do you have to say to me? That's what I'm hoping. We all have that sort of attitude. I'm hoping that we all have that sort of motivation over these next few, few weeks. Come to the feet of Christ and get the opportunity to hear from your King. Let's pray. Christ, we do pray that you would give us the strength to obey what you have to say here. Give us the ability and the motivation that we need. Give us the the heart transplant that we so desperately are in need of. Do that through Christ and through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.